I know it's been a while since we made an episode together, but we needed to take a break because I had to figure out my life post-residency, which all that's happened is I figured out that I haven't figured it out. (laughs) And I also had to do my grand rounds, which is actually the topic that we're going to talk about today since I did all of this research. Why not share it with everyone? But Allie, what have you been up to (laughs) over our break? Yeah. um, Honestly, um, I was telling you, I feel like you know how Forrest Gump was always kind of like in the wrong place, like at the wrong time, like not like how he just happened to see Watergate and all that. Well, I feel like, and this is, and this is true. Like I really, I can't believe I just started getting into stocks and investing and trading and all that. And like, um, someone was telling me, you know, oh, you know what a really good site is, you know, don't subscribe to all of the blogs and, you know, the advisors that, you know, you, you have to subscribe to, you know, their blogs and newsletters and stuff. Uh, you should just look on Reddit. And this was literally the day before this whole thing happened. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. I could see how, like, you know, some people are reading this and then summarizing it and sharing it with other Redditors. And the next day, and then it became that thing where I was like, is everybody talking about this? Am I, have they always been talking about Reddit and stocks? Or is this really something going on? Um, I thought it was, thought it was nuts, but um, I'm, I didn't, I, I, I'm like an amateur, so by no means. Well, you know, I, I, I also about. got into Reddit and, well, well, I've been a Redditor for a long time, but specifically Wall Street Bets. And put a lot of money on AMC this week, so we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, so when I I had my grand rounds on Friday, but I was also trying to look at all my AMC calls, and I was like so distracted because, to be honest, I much more wanted to be looking at my Robinhood app than presenting. But this is a really good topic. So the topic that I did my grand rounds on is sexual dysfunction from serotonergic antidepressants. And some of you who have been on my Instagram for a very long time might remember like, um, I guess maybe fall of 2019, me posting questions about this and then saying that I thought I was gonna end up doing my grand rounds on this topic. So that happened and I did my grand rounds Friday and at the end, I had all quite a few emails from people asking me to do a lit review on this. And I hate research, but I have all the information ready to go. So if there's someone out there who is a med student or a psych resident or someone interested who has, uh, you know, experience doing lit reviews, hit me up and I will like give you all of my info and work with you and you can be an author on the paper, but otherwise I'm not doing it because I'm too lazy. So even though I guess the work's already done. So anyways, getting into it, let's talk about what this is. So first, let's go back to why I became interested in this topic. So sexual dysfunction from serotonergic antidepressants. Well, when I was a PGY3, I was, and I didn't say this during my grand rounds, but I can say it now. I was going through a time period where I was super anxious. So I decided to go on Lexapro. 
and I went on five milligrams of Lexapro and it fixed me right up. Like I went from having terrible anxiety where, you know, I was going through like a lot of external factors that were contributing, but I was super anxious and like crying all the time. And then when I went on Lexapro, it was like nothing mattered and I just felt great. But I had extreme sexual dysfunction, like no libido, like I was totally numb in that area. Um, It was completely like not compatible with having any type of sex life at all whatsoever. Um, Literally my, and this all, I'll bring this up as having happened to other people too, and this is an actual side effect, but like my vagina stopped producing any lubrication, like even normally there was like just nothing going on there. It was like I was neutered. Like I was back to being essentially like an 11-year-old, maybe a 10-year-old, like prepubescent. Um, (laughs) So I ended up going off the medication after three months because that's when I met my boyfriend. I was like, this is not compatible. But I noticed that it took a like – my libido came back right away, but the genital like anesthesia that I was experiencing took over a month for any sensation to come back at all. And I think it took really maybe like nine months to completely recover from three months being on. So that's actually what inspired me to look into this because up until then, what I had heard from people was that, you know, sexual dysfunction from SSRIs, it was mostly males, it was mostly erectile dysfunction, and like as soon as they went off the medication, they returned to normal. So I ended up deciding at that time that I was just going to post on Instagram and survey people about this. Um, And so I posted a survey on my Instagram, and that survey was just asking people if they had experienced any sexual dysfunction while taking an SSRI. And at that time, 229 people replied to my Instagram survey, and 71% of those people reported they had experienced sexual dysfunction while taking an SSRI. And then, so I did another poll, and I polled those people, and I was just like, you know, how many of you who had the sexual dysfunction when you were on SSRI did you return to normal after discontinuing it? And 76% said they returned to normal. And I guess 24% felt whatever happened was enough that they didn't want to say that um, answer positively to that question. And then I asked another follow-up question for people who said that their normal sexual functioning came back after discontinuing the SSRI. Um, Did it take more than a month or less than a month? And... 52% said it took less than a month, which means that 48% were in my category where they sort of felt like it really took longer to return to normal. Obviously, I know that this is just an Instagram survey and it's not like, you know, some validated method, but I thought it was quite interesting that these percentages of people having experiences more like mine were much higher than what you are sort of taught. So yes, I really got interested in this whole subject because of my own experience with it, which was a good thing, I think. Now I'm really uh, cognizant of this. That's really, you know, I want to say for research, you know, let's normalize. I know we talked about this, like when you 
are a med student and you go, um, you know, on your interviews for residency or vice versa, you know, research is a lot of work and it, it can be a pain sometimes. And finding something you're passionate about, something that affects you, that's like worth, you know, worth it because then, you know, you care about it more. Um, versus somebody just assigning you a topic or you kind yeah. of just inheriting a project. So I think that, you know, then it doesn't feel so much like work. Mm-hmm. Um, for and sure. And I just have a question. So yeah. for people not familiar with Lexapro, five milligrams, is that like a lo- the lowest dose? Yeah. So I'm going to get more into doses later, <clears throat> but I was on what's technically half of a therapeutic dose. And I'm going to okay. talk about later in this why therapeutic doses aren't all they're made out to be. But yeah, I was on a real baby dose. Um, yeah. And I felt great on it. Like I said, like I don't regret going on it because at that time I needed it, but it was never something that I could do long term. And if I ever was suffering from anxiety um, to the point in the future where I felt that I needed a medication, I wouldn't pick that. And part of this whole podcast presentation, my grand rounds, is show is educating people about the options out there, um, you know, and just so that people can go on with informed consent because I had really no idea what I what I was getting myself into in that regard so um so I ended up following up with people who responded to my Instagram survey and sort of what I found out was at that point you know when I did the polls I just asked about SSRIs um and for people who were taking SSRIs that caused sexual dysfunction there were no real SSRIs that didn't cause it. There was someone reporting it with every single SSRI that's commonly prescribed. And there were also people telling me they experienced it with, with Effexor or Venlafaxine, which is an SNRI. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just limited to <clears throat> SSRIs. And really what most people reported suffering from who were experiencing the sexual dysfunction They reported both decreased libido and difficulty orgasming. Although another person reported the other thing that I experienced myself, which is loss of vaginal lubrication. So it was more perhaps um, people who are experiencing more severe sexual dysfunction would have like all of those. But most people did experience at least some more you know, lower libido, more difficulty experience to get to an orgasm. So beyond that, you know, there are a lot of people who replied and they've been on multiple SSRIs in their life. But there wasn't really um, too much that could be gleaned from people saying, like, I had it on this SSRI and I didn't have it on this SSRI. It was more like... You know, it shows how individualized someone's responses to these medications um, because people could have it on one and then not have it on another, and there was no clear pattern between that. But what everyone really did seem to be consistent on was that their sexual dysfunction was dose-dependent. So when they were on higher doses of the SSRIs, they experienced more sexual dysfunction. And another thing is that for most people, even if it didn't resolve, within a month, it generally, their sexual dysfunction that was induced from the antidepressant resolved within a year of discontinuation. Now, there were some exceptions. 
and the ones who said that it never really resolved, they all were started on SSRIs as teens. They were on them for at least a decade, and they report continue um, decreased libido. Now, it's hard to differentiate if this is due from, like, chronic depression, which certainly could cause the same thing. But it should also be considered that chronic SSRI use while sexuality is developing is more detrimental. So we don't really know, but it must be considered. So the next thing that I want to do is define like how sexual dysfunction actually presents. And we've already gone over some of these when I was sort of listing things I experienced and then what is common amongst others. So decreased libido, it's obviously not specific. It can also be caused by depression, but patients can usually clarify if they had decreased libido before onset of medication. And we need to note that in drug trial data for SSRIs, even the healthy volunteers taking the medication reported problems with their sex drive, and that is without prompting. So moving on, the two next things, general anesthesia, aka numbness, and decreased ability to orgasm. So these two are the most common side effects specific to these medications, and up to 40% of patients who are on one of these medications report this. And the more common things, males, erectile dysfunction, the female version of that is decreased vaginal lubrication. And because everybody responds differently, um, there are rare situations where it can sort of have the opposite sexual dysfunction, which would be premature ejaculation or hyperorgasmia, which is known as persistent genital arousal disorder. And my psych pharmacist mentor who worked with me on my grand rounds, she reported that she actually had a patient that experienced the persistent genital arousal disorder after an increase in the dose of their effexor. Wow. Do you know, does anybody know, <laughs> anybody in this room, is vaginal lubrication, some, is that analogous to erection? In, like, so the, in the literature that I was reading... They tended to um, align the two as being the same because it's like there's arousal and then there's there's your physical response to arousal. And the physical response for arousals in men is, um, you know, having an erection. And for women, it's vaginal lubrication. So I actually think like um, – you know, I said I experienced that and one person told me they experienced that. I think it probably is is has a much higher prevalence, but most people aren't going to say something like or perhaps even notice because a lot of people aren't super in tune with their bodies that they are experiencing that. Um, whereas like it's in your face if you're not getting an erection literally. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that being said, why should psychiatric providers or anyone else who's prescribing these medications assess for sexual dysfunction in the treatment of depression? Well, we know that there is a relationship between sexual function and quality of life. We know that sexual function is important to people regardless of their mood state. And we know that sexual dysfunction in depressed patients might be an added source of distress, which may worsen their mental health. And 
maybe most importantly, antidepressant-induced sexual dysfunction may lead to noncompliance with treatment because why mm-hmm. are you going to, you know, take something that has side effects that are detrimental to you? So 40% of patients will find the sexual dysfunction induced from their serotonergic antidepressants intolerable, which is, of course, a really high number. Yeah. So I looked into this more, and when I found like a survey of patients who discontinued antidepressant treatment, the most frequently cited reason for non-adherence was side effects, including sexual dysfunction. However, unfortunately, I could not find a study that provided an exact stat for this or actually looked at the number one cause. So there just wasn't the research there. So the next thing to get into, the big thing, why do some of these antidepressants induce sexual dysfunction? What is the pathophysiology of that? So the real thing to know here is that sexual dysfunction is a result of stimulating the 5-HT2A receptor and SSRIs stimulate this receptor. So excess serotonin, which is 5-HT, at the 5-HT2A receptor is known to inhibit ejaculation and orgasm. So some other things to know. Although SSRIs have the same basic mechanism of action, they all have differing secondary pharmacological characteristics, which explains how the efficacy and side effect profile may differ in each individual. So essentially, SSRIs and SNRIs stimulate all serotonin receptors, but the therapeutic effects are thought to come from stimulating the 5-HT1A receptor However, other serotonin receptors like 5-HT2A and 5-HT2C are activated as well, and this theoretically can cause a lot of side effects. So while there are other mechanisms that can be implicated in sexual dysfunction, this could be a whole presentation, podcast, whatever, on its own, 5-HT2A is the biggest culprit. So now venlafaxine, which is an SNRI or effexor, It also works on this receptor, but it also works on norepinephrine, which is thought to mitigate some of the side effects of stimulating 5-HT2. Although at low doses, venlafaxine works in a similar manner to the more um, stereotypical SSRIs, primarily on 5-HT2 over norepinephrine, which explains a story from my supervisor, the psych pharmacist, who said that the patient had, like, Um, the persistent genital arousal disorder when they were on a higher dose of effexor because the norepinephrine was more activated than the inhibiting receptor. So actually, I sort of put that together when I was researching this because my psych farm supervisor had told me this story beforehand. And then actually when I looked through the mechanisms and understood them, there was an explanation there for why that occurred. So... The first thing you might do if you're wondering about, like, what is the risk of sexual dysfunction um, from each antidepressant is you might look up, like, the antidepressant prescription drug labels on the NIH. So I looked these up myself, and I actually made a little chart on it that you can't see here, but um, I took all the data that I could find in the drug labels. It wasn't presented uniformly. There were a lot of statistic ranges given to um, 
you know, for the data, but I ended up making averages of all of them. And I listed out the drugs oldest to newest. Um, and my reasoning for that was more recent drugs are more likely to actually screen for sexual dysfunction and include data on this, which is why this data ends up being bad data. So like, for example, you can't see the chart, but fluoxetine was the first SSRI that was made. And the only thing they note as far as sexual dysfunction is that 2% of patients experience decreased libido. Now, I'm certain they didn't screen for this, and this was self-report only, which is sort of a terrible way to do things. Um, and, you know, some of the newer SSRIs, which theoretically cause less sexual dysfunction, have a bit higher numbers, and they looked at more things, like instead of just decreased libido, they looked at delayed ejaculation in males, erectile dysfunction in males, and um, inability to orgasm in females. So they just did a little bit of a better job, but it's still, from what I could tell for the main SSRIs, it was all based on self-report. So the percentages are pretty low. Like the highest percentage I saw of any of the percentages I looked at was paroxetine or Paxil, they listed 20% of males experienced delayed ejaculation, but I would imagine it's much higher than that. So some of the wow. newer drugs did a better job, and they used um, better stuff like questionnaires, which I'm going to talk about in a second. But because they use better data, even though they're like a better way to gather data, I should say, um, they look like they cause more sexual dysfunction because that even though from everything that you can actually understand, they, they probably actually cause it less. Kind of like analogous to COVID testing being coming more available, making it look like the yes. numbers are going up. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. So what do the drugs or like studies or anything that does a good job, um, you know, tracking – people's sexual function and sexual dysfunction use? Well, there's one questionnaire called ASEX, which stands for Arizona Sexual Experiences Scale. ASEX? Yeah, ASEX. Like asexual? <laughs> yes. And it's it's really great because it's you can find it free online. You can Google it, and it comes right up, and it's just like five questions that patients rate having to do with their um, sexual, uh, like, sexual function at that time. There's also one called CSFQ, but it's, like, 30 questions, and it costs money. But some of the hmm. studies, if you look into them, they do use that. So I encourage you to look up ASEX because I think it's great, and I'm going to talk about it more. So getting back to what we've mentioned, de yes, depression can cause sexual dysfunction, um, but I did find a study that looked at it and they used, um, they actually used ASEX to look at it. And what they found was that yes, depression can cause sexual dysfunction because they looked at a group of males and females who had been without, um, any type of psychotropic medication for a month. So they did a one month washout period. Granted, it would be better if they did it for longer, but it's very hard right. to find people who carry a diagnosis of depression who aren't on psychotropic medication. And really what comes down to is depression, when untreated, it's mostly just the desire, the libido part. So like 
35% of respondents reported difficulty with desire. As far as other issues, a lower, a lower percentage. Um, But this is just a great reason, which we'll get into, is why perhaps before you start a patient on psychotropic medication, if you're lucky enough to have someone come into you and they're not on anything, um, it can be good to to use one of these questionnaires like ASEX to get their to find out what their baseline sexual function is, um, or when they're coming to you and they're on things, still finding out what their baseline is with those medications. So, interestingly, studies that looked at anxiety and sexual dysfunction generally found that anxiety causes an increase in arousal, which um, you know I think makes sense. A lot of yeah. people who are who've been like through medical school would uh, talk about you know being stressed, studying, and horny at the same time. So when I found this study, I was not surprised. But it does make it interesting because people like, for example, myself who were on SSRIs for anxiety, not depression, um, <coughs> and found it totally like in my case, it totally took away my sexual function. So, um, you know, it's even more so to believe that it's from the medication and someone who's on it for anxiety because at baseline, their arousal would be high. However, mm. distress, which can be used to to refer to depression and anxiety, it has definitely been linked to hindering someone's ability to orgasm. So that's the one thing that gets impacted by both. So from the data that I could find, the prevalence of sexual dysfunction in patients being prescribed SSRIs, SNRIs, is more like 65%. So the next thing that I want to hit on is that physicians definitely underestimate antidepressant-induced sexual dysfunction. What are contributing factors to this? Well, a lot have the false belief that depression is the only cause of sexual dysfunction um, or another reason is limited knowledge of symptom management. Some people think if you pretend there's not an issue because you don't know how to treat it, that it just doesn't exist. Unfortunately, that's not the case. And then maybe the biggest issue is the belief that patients will self-report. So we have to keep in mind that patients Mm. can be hesitant to initiate a discussion about this for multiple reasons, including cultural differences. And this can result in sexual problems that go on undetected. And studies do show that women are even more hesitant to report sexual side effects than men are, perhaps because there's this belief out there that it's uh, just men and erectile dysfunction that happens when it's a lot more than that. So, for example, there was this Elixir study and it evaluated sexual dysfunction of 5,000 depressed patients. Those directly questioned about sexual dysfunction were twice as likely to report symptoms at 69% compared with reliance on spontaneous reports where it was only 35%. And then I found another study that demonstrated a four-fold difference in reporting in a clinical study of 344 patients with 58% acknowledging sexual dysfunction upon direct and systematic questioning versus 14% who reported when it was just, you know, self-report spontaneous. So attempts to really quantify the frequency of antidepressant-induced sexual dysfunction is really hindered by, you know, this prevalence of physicians being unable to accurately detect its occurrence. 
physicians consistently underestimate the prevalence of sexual dysfunction experienced by patients. I found another study that reported prior to prescribing antidepressants, physicians predicted that only 20% of patients would suffer side effects, um, sexual ones, as a result of the medication. So something else to keep in mind. Patients who are coming to someone for treatment of their depression or whatever, they usually have a different goal with the short-term treatment where they're just so miserable they want to feel better um, that they don't really care about side effects as much. But then once someone is stable and they're feeling better, that's when something like their sexual function becomes very important to them because now that they're feeling better, they want to have a normal sex life. Um, So just something to keep in mind that at early on in treatment, a patient may not really value their sexual function, but then later on it might become, you know, really important. Not a priority. Yes. So I looked at the different SSRIs, SNRIs, beyond their drug labels that I told you was a bad way to figure it out. And I really was able to mostly just compare the more, I guess, uh, widely used SSRIs and SNRIs. And I found that most were categorized in more likely to cause sexual dysfunction at about 75%. And this would be paroxetine, fluoxetine, sertraline, citalopram, and venlafaxine. And there's data to suggest that of these, paroxetine might be the most likely to cause sexual dysfunction. And of the widely utilized SSRIs and SNRIs, I was able to find data suggesting that two are less likely to cause sexual dysfunction at about 35%, and that would be escitalopram and duloxetine. And there's some evidence to suggest that of these, duloxetine is the least likely to cause sexual dysfunction. Now, you know, my own story, obviously I was on Lexapro, which is escitalopram, and I was on a very tiny baby dose. Um, So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) this is data, but it's specific, and everybody's response can be different. And so, by the way, this data that I found, I couldn't find a lot of data comparing drugs within the SSRI, SNRI classes. So this data that I found was just comparing individual SSRIs to placebo. And I have a nice little chart that no one can see, actually. I made so many great charts and no one can see them. (laughs) Oh, well, maybe I'll post them on my Instagram if people are lucky. Um, Or maybe they'll go in a lit review. Who knows? So obviously, you can also consider a a newer SSRI or a different antidepressant. And I will discuss them starting now. So the first of the newer SSRIs that I'm going to hit on is Velazidone or Vibrid. And this is a newer SSRI with a different mechanism of action. It was approved to treat depression in 2011. And the mechanism of action is that it's a partial agonist of 5-HT1A. So this is different and There are studies that show that agonists of 5-HT1A, this causes a pro-sexual effect. 
So that's an explanation why, as a partial agonist, this could maybe cause less sexual dysfunction. So there actually was a study that compared it directly to citalopram, and it caused less sexual dysfunction in women, but results were similar for men. Now, what are the downfalls of this? Well, this is a medication that often requires prior authorization. If you don't have insurance, it's about $300 a month. And unfortunately, it's not approved for anxiety. It caused numerous side effects. So the next newer SSRI that we're going to touch on is Vortioxetine or Trintilix. And that was approved to treat depression in 2013. And once again, different mechanism of action. That 5-HT1A receptor that we mentioned with the prosexual effect, this is a full agonist of that. So studies show when compared to placebo, it doesn't really look like it, like it increases sexual dysfunction. Um, who knows about that? But the more important thing is that in studies comparing it directly to escitalopram duloxetine, which I already mentioned caused sexual dysfunction a little less than most, it caused significantly less sexual dysfunction than those. Unfortunately, it also has cons. Potentially requires a prior auth, um, can be $400 a month without insurance <laughs> coverage, and once again, not approved for anxiety. It showed no improvement when it was uh, utilized for that population. So the other people might mention um, fluvoxamine. What's the other name for that? I have to remember really quickly. But anyways, um, I didn't touch on it because it wasn't really mentioned in, like as a, as a good uh, option for anything. And what I did find out, oh, the other name is Luvox. The, what I did find out from just talking to like Psych Farm friends in that area is that it most likely, they think it's like the most serotonergic of any SSRI. So most likely it would cause more sexual dysfunction, maybe even than Paxil or Paroxetine. So not a good option if you're trying to avoid sexual dysfunction. Now I know we already hit on this. And I said I would go more into it, so I'm going more into it now. So let's recognize that antidepressant-induced sexual dysfunction is dose-dependent and more likely to occur at higher doses. So I see that a lot of people who prescribe antidepressants, um, they really want to get people to a, quote, therapeutic dose, which, you know, there's a different, quote, therapeutic dose for every single one, and we're not going to go mm -hmm. through them, but there's doses that are considered therapeutic doses. So... What do I want to say about this? Well, pharmaceutical companies sort of pick a dose to study when they're looking for medication approval, like FDA approval. And it's sort of picking a little, you know, there's some science behind it, but at the same time, a number is just sort of picked and it's studied. And so once it's studied and it gets FDA approval, that's considered the therapeutic dose. But other doses tend to not really ever be studied because the pharmaceutical company has no money to make out of that so it's just sort of like this is therapy dose but is it really the therapeutic dose because there are a lot of people who are on like half the therapeutic dose and they are fully better but experience way less side effects so my encouragement to clinicians out there is don't push someone to therapeutic dose start them on a lower dose and if they're feeling that they're better at that dose mm -hmm. you don't need to push them to therapeutic dose a uh, present example of this is like with the Moderna vaccine, right? They selected a dose that they were going to study. 
and they studied it and got FDA approval, and now the vaccine's out in the public. But now they think that the dose might be three times what is actually necessary to get that response. So they're doing new studies with a third of the dose. And the reason Moderna has, you know, a vested interest in doing that is because they can get more doses out of their supply, and there's a lot of pressure for us to hit herd immunity. So they have a lot more, you know, they have stuff to gain from studying that. But it's just something to keep in mind about therapeutic doses. They're just what's been studied. So Is there a different, ther- I'm supposed to know this, uh, <laughs> is there a different therapeutic dose for depression and anxiety uh, for these? The theory is that for anxiety, you often have to go to higher doses, but you know, there's always exceptions. I was on five milligrams of Lexapro and had terrible anxiety beforehand and it completely resolved. Like I felt great. <laughs> so every everyone is different. But yeah, the theory is that higher doses to help with anxiety, you can usually get away with lower doses for depression. Okay. So next thing, post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. This is actually a recognized medical condition in Europe. So we need to recognize which we've already sort of talked about, that the antidepressant-induced sexual dysfunction may not result with discontinuation of the medication. So this disorder initially became apparent when doctors in the early 2000s started publishing case reports on themselves, reporting that they were still dealing with sexual dysfunction even a decade after discontinuing serotonergic antidepressants. So patients are often hesitant to report this issue because they face their prescriber dismissing their account. And patients who do have this condition, they often find it more unbearable than their initial mental health concerns. That's just something to keep in mind. Like, this is a real thing. And something else to note, although it's often used off-label for this in America, in Europe, fluoxetine, or Prozac, is specifically approved for the treatment of premature ejaculation. So, It's not surprising then that people who don't have, you know, issues with their sexual function at baseline would then feel that, you know, they're having a decrease in all of these things. I have a question. Yeah. um, About that. So it can, it's, I like using a side effect. I like the idea of using side effect of a medication to help people. Um, I think that's cool. Um, But have historically, and I don't know, this is probably super controversial, but have they ever used uh, SSRIs to treat, like, I don't know if deviant's the right word, but um, I don't even know. To treat what? To treat, I don't know if I want to say, like, deviant sexual behavior, but people who are addicted to sex. Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's, it's not like a... It's not an FDA reason for it, but there are plenty of times where it's used off-label at really high doses for that, like very, very high. So how should all of this knowledge impact our approach to treating depression? Well, the first thing, um, and you know, I have a really nice algorithm, which I used in my grand rounds that I can't show anyone, but we're going to discuss everything that's on it anyways. But I think the first part of the algorithm starts with assessment and it mentions CSFQ. Um, but that's because the author of this study made that assessment. So they make money off of it. Hmm. Um, but you can like, a sex is just great. So I do believe 
that before starting someone on one of these psychotropic medications that can cause sexual dysfunction, that you should really use like ASEX to find out what their baseline sexual function is. And then, you know, and it's really simple, free online. You can find it if you Google it. It's only like five questions. Um, And then when you have that, you can, you know, decide if there are already issues you want to address right then or at least if you monitor it throughout treatment, you can see if the medication is, you know, negatively impacting their sexual function. So part of the reason why I think asex is so great is because even if you are comfortable verbally asking very sexual questions to your patient, they might not be comfortable verbally answering them. So that's why Mm -hmm. I think it's better to do it on paper. Your comfort aside, I think there's a much higher likelihood that your patient's going to be more comfortable answering truthfully, honestly, on paper than verbally. So another thing that I just want to mention is, you know, when you are first assessing a patient, and this isn't usually the case for psychiatrists, because usually when people come to us, they've been on a lot of medication. But at the very least, if you're a primary care physician, really assessing if um, a pharmacological option is in your patient's best interest. And if they, you know, just seem to be struggling with a lot of stressors, and they're open to it and you there's the resources in the area like perhaps a therapy referral would be a better choice now granted a lot of therapists suck so that's an issue of its own accord (laughs) but if it's if you really think you know this is more adjustment disorder or poor coping skills or you know personality disorder then perhaps and they're open to it perhaps maybe considering therapy or something like that over going straight to pharmacological options So what are some other things to think about, especially when you're first assessing a patient? So if you do give a patient like an ASEX questionnaire at like their first appointment or to get a baseline and they already are having issues with sexual dysfunction, they, you might want to consider that there could be some other factors that are contributing into that. So like there are other drugs that cause that like antihypertensives opioids, diuretics, etc. There are also other diseases and conditions that cause sexual dysfunction, so like vascular conditions, neurological disorders, obesity, hyperlipidemia, smoking, excessive alcohol intake, and so on. But one thing that's really cool to think about is that if your patients are also on a statin, encourage adherence to them. So studies have shown that they improve erectile dysfunction likely by targeting the arousal stage. And erectile dysfunction is actually one of the first signs of vascular issues. Statins are just as effective as Viagra for erectile dysfunction. They are potent anti-inflammatories on blood vessels, and this especially helps in young people. Of course, this is not specific to antidepressant-induced erectile dysfunction, but when multiple causes are suspected or maybe present, it certainly doesn't hurt. So wow. next thing I'm gonna yeah. So I next thing pres- I'm gonna prescribe them all the time, and no one's ever reported back that they noticed anything. That's interesting. But you know, that's the thing. People probably aren't gonna like throw in random positive sexual effects. You know, 
they're more likely to focus on negative, and even then they're going to have a hard time reporting that. So yeah, um, I'm not surprised that Statins are a miracle drug. I honestly, They really are. They save lives, so many lives. I, I, they stabilize plaques. Like from a vascular standpoint, they're, they have anti-inflammatory properties. And that this, this is great. Yeah. Yeah, so don't don't um, underutilize the statins. So now I'm going to talk about three medications that can be used as monotherapy and have, um, you know, good sexual function side effects, or they can be used as augmenters. Um, so the first one, bupropion or wolbutrin. So why is this a good drug if, as far as in this regard? So it acts as a norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor, which means it increases someone's norepinephrine and dopamine. And it's generally known to improve sexual function. It may increase libido or decrease threshold to orgasm. And this is, may just be a better first-line option in cases when patient is reporting symptoms like hypersomnia, weight gain, low energy, inability to concentrate, all things that would seemingly benefit from a medication with stimulatory effects. So one thing is, um, you know, bupropion is not a good choice for anxiety. Like if right. someone just has straightforward anxiety and it's not tied into like ADHD or something like that. So it's really more for someone who has that, uh, straightforward depression and could use help there. So yeah, so it can be used monotherapy or augment. Next, mirtazapine. So this drug is sometimes described as a noradrenergic and specific serotonergic antidepressant, but perhaps most importantly, the reason it works so well in this way is because it's an antagonist of the 5-HC2A receptor. Now in the beginning of this talk, I mentioned the 5-HT2A receptor being stimulated by SSRIs is the reason they cause the sexual dysfunction. But this is an antagonist of that receptor, which means it blocks it. So studies show it may improve sexual dysfunction. So this is an ideal medication for patients suffering from insomnia or loss of appetite because it, um, it's sedating and it increases your appetite. So overall, the data shows this medication is equitable to SSRIs, SNRIs, and treating depression. And a study I looked at found that significantly fewer patients will discontinue mirtazapine compared to SSRIs, SNRIs due to inability to tolerate the side effects. So the side effects are more tolerable with mirtazapine. And this mm. can be used off-label to treat anxiety. Now, one thing you want to talk about is the dose. So for therapeutic effects or augmentation, you're really going to want to hit higher doses. So 15 milligrams or greater. And the reason is, according to my psych farm friend, I have so many great psych farms in my life. They're just the best. So she told me that below 15 milligrams, you're really only getting potent antihistamine effects. So it's like Benadryl, but without the anticholinergic effects. So that's why it's used at these low doses to really sort of as like a sleep aid often. Right, and for but, elderly that you don't yes, want to, you know, give them anticholinergic. The anticholinergic, effects. yeah, people love it. But be, it's really only hitting these receptors at lower doses. And then the serotonergic effects really kick in at 15 milligrams. And that's the 2A blockade and the therapeutic effects. 
So if using it um, to really treat depression or really treat sexual dysfunction, you're definitely going to want to use at least 15 milligrams. So next, and you might hear my cat in the background, but you know, she's, she's happy to be here. So next. Happy to be here. <laughs> everything that we've mentioned really isn't that great of a treatment for um, someone who's a having issues with their sexual function and they're anxious, right? So now we're going to talk about my favorite medication of all time. I think it is literally the most underrated and misused and like not utilized appropriately in, you know, people who are experiencing whatever. Anyways, Buspirone or Buspar. So this is just the greatest medication ever. And ever since I started like learning about you know, how these other medications can cause sexual dysfunction. When I have a patient that's anxious and is struggling with that too, I use Buspar. And let me tell you, this medication like heals people. And I've gotten a lot of my co-residents to use it with their like tricky similar cases. And their patients are just like healed of their anxiety from it too. I think it's like the greatest medication. Let me talk more about why it works and how to use it, which is why I think it's so underrated because people don't understand that. So this medication in general, it's often used to augment treatment with SSRIs, SNRIs, when patients report sexual dysfunction or residual anxiety. And while this is often the case, I don't want people to knock it as a monotherapy because it can definitely be used as a monotherapy as well. So why does this medication really work and why is it good for sexual function? It is a 5-HT1A partial agonist. Now you might remember that that's the same mechanism that I mentioned for Vibrid, but this one I'm saying is good for anxiety and Vibrid I said is bad for anxiety. But the reasoning is that while medications have one main mechanism, they have a bunch of smaller mechanisms that are all different like clearly they're different drugs so sometimes even though the main thing is the same the other aspects of the medication is different but anyways in general it's a 5-HT1A partial agonist so why is the main reason that people say this medication doesn't work number one they're using too low of a dose and they're not they're using it PRN and they're not scheduling enough so therapeutic dose of this medication is actually 30 to 60 milligrams total daily dose. So if you put your patient on five milligrams twice daily and it's not working, well, it's just because you have a dose too low. So you need to push the dose higher. User error. Yes. (laughs) And TID dosing is best. That's three times daily. BID second best. And then daily, you know, is the least good. And then PRN, I don't even know why you're doing that. But obviously, it's hard to get patients to agree to take a medication three times a day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just do BID in that case. But it is like the best medication. I think it's amazing. Uh, If you take one thing away from this, take away using Buspar. Thank you. Personally, like I remember thinking about that the other day. um, And I was like, you know, I don't like I never use this. And I was asking like some of my colleagues and they're like, oh, it doesn't work. I'm like, Okay, but now I see why. It is the best. The main side effect for that one, you know, I'm not getting into all the side effects. It's your job to know. But for Buspar, really the only side effect I hear patients complain of is like lightheadedness or like orthostatic hypertension. So all of my no to just like 
if they're going to exercise, like don't take it right beforehand. Um, you know, so anyways, it's great. Obviously these things have to be, you know, adjusted for an individual and how they individually respond. But I, I really think it's like the greatest medication. So some other things that we've sort of hit on, but I just want to reiterate. So keep patients on the lowest dose of SSRIs or SNRIs that are beneficial to them. Do not automatically push patients to be on, quote, therapeutic doses. And if a patient is on an SSRI or SNRI and they have sexual dysfunction that they find intolerable, it certainly may be worthwhile to trial them on another. So what if a patient wants to stay on their SSRI or SNRI despite sexual dysfunction? There are no drugs specifically approved to treat antidepressant-induced sexual dysfunction, but as we already mentioned, you can definitely consider augmentation with bupropion, mirtazapine, or bisprone. So what are some other things to consider? One option when we're looking at augmentation is trazodone. Now, there was a small study with an N of 15 that found that 100 milligrams of trazodone improved antidepressant-induced sexual dysfunction as well as improving anxiety and depression. So this wouldn't be something that you would use as a monotherapy, but it can definitely be considered as an augmentation option. So how does it work? It begins to inhibit 5-HT2A at essentially any clinical dose. However, it's likely to need a higher dose, 200 milligrams or greater, in order to get full antisexual dysfunction effects. So keep that in mind. And it's so what you should take away from that is it's really, as far as the 5-HT2A receptor, it's working in the opposite way of an SSRI. And everyone knows that trazodone can cause priapism, which is like sustained erections. So it shouldn't be surprising that it has like prosexual effects. Um, and it's also a great medication to help insomnia, anxiety, agitation. So just um, keep it in mind and know that below 200 milligrams, you might mostly just be getting the um, antihistamine effects. And once it's higher, you might really get the, you know, 5-HT2A inhibiting effects. So th that's related. The priapism is related to the same but opposite reason that they cause sexual dysfunction. Yeah, because it because it's um it certainly most likely is. Do I know for sure? No, but it, it's not it surprising sense. that it yeah, it that it's sense. a prosexual. Sometimes you don't know things like perfectly, but you uh, do your you have a possible explanation. But I'm going to mention how often some is that? Oh yeah. How often do you see that? Priapism? Am I even saying it right? Are you saying it right? I don't know. Okay, well, whatever. <laughs> One of us, I'm probably, I pronounce everything wrong. Or maybe it's like um, priapism. Pre I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, no, you probably had it right, but I just, I'm just asking to make fun of myself. But to be honest, I've never seen it, but I know it really? happens. Yeah, so, you know, it happens, but I've just never seen it. Interesting. But at least it's not like a deadly side effect or something. So some other ones that I'm going to just mention briefly because they do come up. So these are other augmentation options for treatment of sexual dysfunction. Nefazodone. This is a really 
This is an older medication. It's sort of been replaced by trazodone, nefazodone, trazodone, haha. So <laughs> when medications are have similar names, they have similar mechanisms, right? So nefazodone also works like trazodone does by blocking those 5-HT2A receptors potently. But unfortunately, it's super prone to interactions with other drugs and it carries a risk of hepatic failure. So it's not really used widely anymore. Um, another medication that comes up, ciproheptadine, just like nefazodone and trazodone, it also works by blocking those 5-HT2A receptors potently, but it's very sedating, so it's not used that often. It's more often used to stimulate appetite. Hmm. Something else that came up, yohimbine. This is very old, archaic. It's a thing that something that's derived from tree bark, and it was commonly prescribed for erectile dysfunction before our modern day options like Viagra. However, the evidence really isn't great. Like in the year 1900, it was thought to be an aphrodisiac, but studies don't really back this. And something else I want to mention, Abilify. I have heard of many psychiatrists using it for antidepressant-induced sexual dysfunction, but I couldn't really find studies backing this. However, I did find many studies showing it is a superior antipsychotic when it comes to sexual dysfunction. Yeah. So moving beyond augmentation options, what are other treatment options? Um, so this is when you want to treat the sexual dysfunction itself. So... You can consider sildenafil, a.k.a. Viagra, for both men and women. And really? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Oh, Orally wow. for both. So for men, it's targeting the erectile dysfunction. And for women, it's targeting delayed orgasm and inadequate lubrication. And my psych farm friend, she told me she uses the oral sildenafil in a woman, and it, it, works for, it, wor- it worked for them. So, awesome. yes, you can use it. Um, and there's also a topical version for women as well, and it's referred to as Climax Cream or Scream Cream, and I've heard from many pharmacist friends it is quite popular, so something to keep in mind. And Cream Cream. Yes, I was talking to Pelvic Pain Doc, who many of you know because she came on here before, and I asked her, you know, do you ever have women with these issues? Like, what do you think about? She told me something that she considers is Zestra, which is an over-the-counter plant-based oil that can enhance sexual pleasure, um, helps blood flow, heightens pleasure. Obviously, this is just for women. So that's something to think about. And then another thing I read about for women online in some study is that exercising 15 minutes or so before sexual activity is shown to increase arousal. And something else I read as well was that for both men and women, scheduling sexual activity increased their orgasmic success. So something else. Yeah. Interesting, right? But um, perhaps it's... uh, I would think spontaneity. Yeah. but, But then I can also see how scheduling would give you something to anticipate. So it's that buildup. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, or maybe it's more focused. It's a less stressful time Mm. because Mm -hmm. there's time cut out. There can be a lot of factors. But um, something else I want to mention is consider drug holidays. 
So this would be an option for shorter acting SSRIs. So example, go off Thursday, resume Sunday night, and plan for sexual activity right before resuming medication. So this, people, some people report it helps, some people report it doesn't help. It might be placebo effect of going off because obviously anxiety really affects like if you worry that things aren't going to go well, they might not go well. But either way, some people report it as a good option. So it's just something to consider. Um, and then obviously there are people who say it took a very long time for their sexual function to return after going off one of these medications. So a drug holiday would probably not help them. Mm. And last resort, there's always the option to refer to a specialist, such as an OB-GYN, who may be able to offer other treatments such as exogenous hormones. So that being said, um, you know, that was what I presented for my grand rounds. And I concluded with saying we need more research. There's probably, unfortunately, just not a lot of money to be made because, you know, pharmaceutical companies don't want to reveal that their drug is not good for sexual function. And then a lot of the medications that we use to help are generic and have been around for years, so there's not a lot of money in them either. And when I presented on my my grand rounds on this, I got one question where someone asked, like, um, has any of the study about people's sexual functioning before and after being on this medication, does any of it look at objective measures like, you know, fMRIs, I don't even know all the things you could look at to see how it affects. And I said, no, it's all subjective, just questionnaires. So, you know, it would be interesting if there was um, some objective, you know, measures. But once again, I just don't think there's a lot of motivation to do that. And then someone else asked me about tricyclic antidepressants. They were like, are these good for sexual function or not? Well, first off, like, they're barely utilized anymore because they just have a side effect profile that's not that great. And then at overdose, they can be lethal. So yeah, they're still used, but it's not really psychiatrists who are using them. But it can still occur with them because once again, they're also working on serotonin. Um, but it's less likely with the tricyclic antidepressants that are primarily noradrenergic. But, you know... With these, it's whatever. Um, they do also have anticholinergic effects that happen linked to sexual dysfunction. This, in particular, could be treated with, how do you pronounce that medication? Bethanacol or something? Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yeah. Because it's yeah. pro-cholinergic. But, yeah, so that's just what I, I know about I the subject. I that helps everyone. Every yeah, you do. Have, you, have I, people reported sexual dysfunction? No. Okay. No, I use them for um, migraine and prophylaxis. So these people are getting more than 15 migraines a month, and it's obviously debilitating, um, and I go very low, low dose. Um, yeah, I, I think what I did read is that they the sexual side effects are lower than with, like, SSRIs, SNRIs, but they, it could still happen. I just don't really know. If someone else is an expert on that, feel free to weigh in. But personally, I like looking at you know, in as far as the psychiatry, what are the medications we're actually using? And because yeah. I'm not utilizing this, I've never put someone on one. I didn't really look too far into it. But do you have any thoughts on anything, Allie? Uh, any questions? I thought that was great. And I like definitely think that 
you brought up a lot of things that are kind of under addressed that you basically addressed. You compared them within the class. And I think that, you know, you kind of have everything cut out. And I, I think this is would make a great project. Um, yes. Yeah. I, if I decide that I can post stuff without it hurting the prospects of a light review, like the charts or whatever, then I will. Or I might just like, I would hold you know. on to those. No. Okay. Okay. That's I won't, your... guys. Sorry. But if yeah. someone if someone wants to help me with my lit review, I have everything ready to go. <laughs> so I had two questions. Yes. Um, you actually answered most of them as we were going, um, which is awesome. But one question is more of like a thought. Um, it, I don't know if it's a question, but when when I think about young, I don't know. I should really think about it for everybody, but especially like my younger patients who aren't on anything and I'm going to start an SSRI and I think about, um, you know, Wellbutrin. And it's always interesting because I'm like, you know, I if there's, they say that Wellbutrin can help stop smoking. Is that true? Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's FDA approved for that as well. Because I always get that mixed up with Buspar, but... Um, is there any relationship between how SSRIs and sexual dysfunction looking at it as like a reward pleasure thing when you look, when you compare it to something like Wellbutrin that can have smoking sensation, cessation properties? Like I was thinking maybe dopamine somehow. Yeah. Well, you know, Wellbutrin works on just different mechanisms. So dopamine, norepinephrine, um, it just is more of those positive pro-sexual things to have around. And because they're making someone feel so positive, I mean, that's some of why someone smokes nicotine-containing right. products. So now they're getting some of that from their medication, which is why theoretically it could help with smoking cessation. And it does. You know, you'll see it with right. patients that are on it. It doesn't make it perfect, but they usually cut back, like uh, they can cut back a decent amount on smoking. That's awesome. And then my second question was the time <clears throat> the time for washout that you described, like how it could take some people up to a year before they get their sexual function back. Is that does that correlate to um, the time that their depressive symptoms are, you know, do they find that okay, I'm starting to feel the effects of not being on an SSRI and my sexual function is coming back? Yeah, I think it does. I think some people, it just it, it stays in their body, the effects of it, for very long, like much longer than you would guess based upon half-life or things like that. So I think, yeah, um, you know, they they retain, they might retain some of the positive effects a lot longer too while also retaining some of the side effects. Gotcha. Although there's, the like, last... no real studies, but, yeah, go ahead. Right. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, it would be such a subtle, subtle day-to-day yeah. change. There'd be no way. But um, my last question – I had three questions. I'm sorry. I'm, like, the worst audience member for Grand. <laughs> yeah, I really I am. <laughs> um, the going to virtual was, like, the best thing that could have happened because I asked so many <laughs> questions. Did you come across any studies uh, about – 
I'm sure there aren't many, but women who take SSRIs while pregnant or breastfeeding, if their baby has any sexual development issues um, or desire issues just based on their developing brain? Um, You know, obviously that's something that's not specifically looked at. Most of what is looked at uh, is impact on, um, you know, birth and infancy and someone's sexual function would be something years later down the line. But what I will say, across the line, if a woman is suffering from depression or anxiety, if she was doing well on an SSRI or an SNRI before she got pregnant, it is in her best interest to stay on that medication, not just for her, before the baby. The baby statistically does better when the mother's um, depression or anxiety is being treated. And I actually see it's more primary care physicians or other physicians that when someone gets pregnant or is breastfeeding, they either change the medication or they take them off it. And it's more psychiatrists that keep them on because we know that the data backs that both mom and baby will do better if they're if, she, if mom's depression anxiety is managed. Now, if you have someone who comes to you in pregnancy and they've literally never been on any of these medications before, but it's bad and they want to start one, you'd probably pick Zoloft or Sertraline mm-hmm. because it's the one that's secreted um, in breast milk like the least and then, uh, you know, affects the fetus less than others or whatever, crosses all that stuff less. But if someone's already doing well on something, there's no reason to change that. They're going to do better if they stay stable and stay doing well, and so is the baby. Oh, excellent. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah. Um, okay. That that's This is such a cool topic. I mean, it's I can see why it's not studied. I mean, you know, but now, you know, we're becoming – you know, where it even starts at the medical education level. We're teaching uh, med students to get a good sexual history and don't be afraid to talk yeah. about these things while also having that cultural, um, you know, sensitivity and, and, and things like that. So, Yep. I think it's super important. Well, anyways, I hope this was helpful for everyone listening, even if you are not in medicine yourself, sometimes just having a, a awareness of these medications on a higher level makes you a better advocate for yourself so thank Thank you for this consult. consult